Well, praise God. I'm very grateful to be here uh, with you this morning uh, to preach God's Word, and I pray that you're encouraged by our time in His Word. Uh, I do want to remind you of a couple of things. Uh, so two weeks ago, I preached about reconciliation. And as I preached about reconciliation, our reconciliation with God, I told you that one of my jobs was not to stand here and make you feel comfortable. And I preached hard about our sinful position before God. Uh, well, this morning we take up another difficult topic uh, that doesn't make us feel very comfortable. Uh, I'm not going to call you vile wretches this morning. Uh, but we are going to talk about trials in our life. Uh, because uh, I would be failing in my duty as a pastor to not prepare the people that God has given me to shepherd for the trials that you will indeed face, that you very well may be facing now or know that you will face in the near future. Um, this week, as uh, we made our way through the reading plan, which uh, we're, we have a right now, we're preaching through an annual reading plan where we started in the very beginning in Genesis and read all the way through in a chronological fashion, uh, all the way to the end of Scripture. And so, in a few weeks, we're going to wrap up our our long our annual uh, event of preaching through the story of Scripture. Uh, and uh, this week, we made it through the end of the book of Acts. Uh, also read Colossians, as, as Jared mentioned earlier in the opening uh, in our call to worship. Uh, but we read about Paul and his wrapping up of his missionary journey uh, there as he had made his way around Asia and almost to Italy and then came back to Jerusalem. And one of the things that struck me most in this journey that Paul made, especially at the end, uh, was the number of trials that he was put through. Paul was tried six different times from Acts chapter 20 to Acts chapter 28. And, and what I mean by trials is literally he was put before some ruler from, from the lowest of the ranks all the way to Caesar in Rome. Defending his faith. It was amazing to also notice that Paul likely, in chapter 19, when the Jews arrest him and say, they say they put him in two chains in chapter 19 to, to arrest him, it, it's likely that he was bound in those chains for two to three years before he was released for two years of ministry in Acts chapter 28 as he's in Rome. Our faith tradition as Christians is full of men and women like Paul who have remained faithful before the powers of the day that didn't know exactly how to deal with Christians. They didn't know what to do with these people who pledged their allegiance to Jesus. During that time, Paul, in his return uh, to Jerusalem, there was a, a good deal of unrest and tension in the land. Uh, commentators describe the times in Jerusalem like this. They were chaotic. They were volatile. Ready to boil over at any minute. And the Jews were struggling with the true acceptance of the Gentiles believing in their God, and they were now partakers of the Jewish promises that God had made to His people in the Old Testament. No one, not even the Jewish church leaders, were rolling out the red carpet and saying, Paul, come on back home. I mean, it was so bad that even a rumor of Paul showing up with Gentile believers only in Jerusalem because Paul rolled deep. Like in Acts chapter 20, man, he's got a Berean brother. He's got some Thessalonican brothers. He's got, I mean, he's rolling with a crowd into Jerusalem and it will influence how he is received. The nature of the deteriorated relationship between Jews, Christians, and Romans would continue for nearly 300 years of church history. 
And those are some of the worst years. Persecution of Christians even remains a constant reality for many of our brothers and sisters in the world today. We are privileged to be sitting in this room not under the threat of someone tearing down our building, arresting Jared and I, and scattering you in this city. Because that is really happening in the world today. And it was happening in the time of Paul as well. Scholars note that there were likely four primary reasons, there were probably a myriad of others, of why Rome actually persecuted the Christians. Uh, Christians live strange lives and, and the, the Romans actually deemed them a cult because Christians didn't really say they were Jewish. Like the Romans knew how to deal with the Jews. Like just let them do their Jewish religious thing and they'll be okay. Uh, but, but these people, these Christians, they're, they're like Jews, but they're not Jews and we don't know what to do with them. They were religious, but not the right kind of religious. Another reason was that Christian living implicitly, implicitly judged Roman society. Christians lived different than Roman citizens. And that had an impact. Christians also submitted to only one Lord, which was a direct threat to the emperor's rule in the land. And the Romans knew it. And then fourthly, one of the, the fourth reason why or primary reason why Rome had persecuted Christians was because Christians believed in the exclusivity of Christ mm-hmm. in the midst of pluralism. Right. Rome was conquering the world, okay? And all Rome would do is go in and go, okay, you have your religion, you can keep your religion as long as you serve the emperor and pay your taxes. There was no state religion at the time in the early church. It was sort of like a melting pot. Everybody could have their own beliefs. A pluralistic society. But Christians claimed there was only one way to be appeased with God, and that was through Christ. One notable story in the history of persecution in the church in the Roman Empire is the story of Polycarp. Anybody ever heard of Polycarp? Polycarp? Yeah, a few of you. Well, Polycarp uh, served as a bishop in the church of Smyrna, uh, which is located in present-day Turkey. His martyrdom illustrates exactly how offensive Christianity and Christian belief proved to be within the empire. He was encouraged to leave the city and flee flee out to the countryside where he remained devoted, but he was eventually hunted down and put and drug into the local Roman arena where a large crowd that had been calling for his death called again for Polycarp's death. And it is said that as Polycarp was standing there in the arena, he heard a voice from heaven, Be strong, Polycarp. Play the man. And then Polycarp was pressured to deny Christ and swear to Caesar by the Roman official in charge at the arena. But he refused. Polycarp said, For 86 years I have been his, that is Jesus' servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Swear by Caesar's fortune, said the official. Polycarp says, if you imagine that I swear by Caesar's fortune as you put it, pretending not to know who I am, I will make it plainly clear to you, I am a Christian. And the official said, we've got wild beasts. Polycarp said, call them. The official replied, well, if you make light of the beast, then we have a fire to make. Polycarp said, the fire that you threaten with burns for a little while and is soon extinguished. But there is a fire that you know nothing of. The fire of judgment that comes and of eternal punishment. The fire reserved for the ungodly. But why do you hesitate? Do what you want. The official said, Polycarp has confessed to be a Christian. 
This is a fellow teacher in Asia and the follower of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods, who teaches numbers of people to sacrifice, to not sacrifice or even to worship. Polycarp was then bound to a stake. A pile of wood was stacked around him and set on fire. And as Polycarp burned at the stake, he prayed, I bless Thee, God, for, for counting me worthy of this day and hour in the number of the martyrs, that I may partake in Christ's cup, the resurrection of both the soul and the body. Increasingly, we see Efforts all around us in our day where Christians are being questioned and tried themselves for their faith, for their hope, for their commitment to truth. The list of reasons why Rome persecuted Christians sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? Christians are marked, mocked and shamed for living countercultural lives. Our society knows that Christians have an ethic, an ethic that distinguishes us from the rest of our fellow citizens, or at least it should, believer. And we confess to only have one King, and He alone is our Lord. We bow to no president, we bow to no king, and we bow to no dictator. Lastly, yes, Christ is the only way to return to the Father. Yes, we have an exclusive faith in Jesus alone. No other religious leader, friend, has lived a sinless life and conquered death on anyone's behalf. Jesus is the only one who has an empty tomb and is worthy of our allegiance and devotion. He's worthy to be burned at the stake for. He's worthy to lose your job over. He's worthy to cause a little bit of strife in your life. And in Luke's record of the end of Acts chapter 20 to verse 20, to chapter 28, where Paul is tried over and over again for his knowledge of the truth, his faith and hope in the resurrection. And that hope led him to persevere, provides us an example as he represents Christ in the midst of difficulty and trials. The main point of the sermon today is that we too can represent God well in trials. We too can represent God well in trials as we trust God's Word, have faith in the resurrection and persevere until our ministry is complete. So, I want you to open up your Bibles and I want you to turn to Acts chapter 24. There's nothing special about Acts chapter 24. It's simply where we find all three elements of Paul's defense before the various people he gave a defense of the faith before. Uh, there are various times where he starts out his defense and he shares his testimony, he shares his tr trust in the Old Testament, and they cut him off. And they're like, get out of here, Paul. Uh, there's times where he gets to, uh, to, to get to the Gospel and share. And, and even the King Agrippa will say, as I prayed earlier, before we started the service, I prayed for our time together this morning, that those with an earshot would believe the good news that Paul was able to fully proclaim, even to King Agrippa. But all three elements of Paul's defense of the faith, his knowledge of the truth, his faith in the resurrection, and his perseverance are found and seen in this context of Acts chapter 24. A little bit about the context is that Paul now is before Felix. Okay? Felix is the Roman leader over Israel, basically. Palestine. Okay? And Felix uh, is there and he's uh, uh, asked for uh, Paul to both come and also those who have arrested Paul to come. And Felix has recounted what he knows of the account and then he gives Paul an opportunity to speak. And that's where we pick up 
in Acts chapter 24, starting in verse 10. So I'm going to read from 10 to 27, and then we'll see how each one of these elements show up. So in when, and when the governor, that's Felix, had nodded to him, that's Paul, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that what they now bring up against me. But, what I, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that, they, that there will be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present, uh, to present offerings. So just stop right there for a second. Just a little bit more of the history and context of what Paul is doing. One of the things that Paul did on his journey back from his third missionary journey was he began to visit the churches because he had caught wind. Well, well, he was going to encourage them, but he had also caught wind of the difficulty that the church in Jerusalem was beginning to have under the persecution and prominence of Rome who was pressing in on them. And, and, and so because the, the Jews and the Romans at the time, the Jews and the Christians at the time were having some difficulty and the church in Jerusalem was catching the brunt of that difficulty. And one of the things that Paul does is as he's going to encourage those churches, he begins to take up an offering to take back to Jerusalem, to present to them, to encourage the church, to let them know that there are brothers and sisters all throughout Asia and all throughout the known world who love them, who've prayed for them, who are now giving alms in order that the church might be supported and encouraged in Jerusalem in the midst of trials. So he's come to present those offerings, but he was arrested back in 18 of chapter 24. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia... They, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. That was the first trial he was on before the Jewish council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having rather an accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he stood, that he should keep in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he, set, he sent for Paul and heard him speak about the faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. 
So what I want us to see this morning in our text are three equipping aspects of Paul's trials. Three equipping aspects of Paul's trials. Things that we ourselves can be equipped with as we see Paul equipped with there in his trial uh, that will aid us as we ourselves make it through the difficulties of this world. Uh, the first one we're going to see is the knowledge of the truth in Acts chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. And then uh, a defended faith in Acts 24, 21. And then perseverance in Acts 24, 27. So let's look at the knowledge of the truth. Look there with me at Acts chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Paul here in these verses and regularly before his uh, trials uh, would state a truth claim that he was saying nothing that had not already been, been revealed by Moses and the prophets. So Paul is primarily put on trial because the, because the Jews have problems with him taking the gospel to the Gentiles and preaching about this resurrection. But, but Paul's saying, I'm not sharing with anyone anything new. Everything I'm proclaiming can be found in the law of Moses and the prophets. Ultimately, what Paul is saying here is that Scripture, specifically the Old Testament, is trustworthy and true. God had made a promise in, the, in His Old Covenant, and He, as the great God of heaven, would always keep His Word. He made promises of old and He is keeping them for us today. Paul was so familiar with the promises of the Old Testament that he could not comprehend God not fulfilling His promise in Christ. Like, Paul couldn't deal with anything else, but God had done what He said He would do. God remained faithful over and over again throughout the Old Testament. He sustained the earth and sinful humanity, even though rebellion continued after the flood. He rescued His people from Egyptian oppression. He had provided a king over Israel, even after counseling them that having kings would go wrong for them. He stuck by Israel's side, even in continual idolatry and sinful adherence to the law as an attempt to keep His favor. Notice I said a sinful adherence to the law because they wanted to do it to keep God's favor. They didn't do it to reflect His character. God had orchestrated the entire world history to bring about the promised one's birth in the city of David to be the forever king that He had promised to David and to Israel. And when God said He would remain faithful, He did. He sent His Son to proclaim the promise of eternal life that anyone could repent and believe that He, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Christ. He is the only One who cleanses them from their sins and sets them before God as holy and blameless. Amen. The Old Testament Scriptures, when read rightly, remind even the Gentiles Yes, you and me, Gentiles. That before Christ, we were a people without a hope. The Old Testament read rightly reveals that Gentiles have no hope in this world. And now that Jesus has come, and fulfilled the prophetic hope that Gentiles would indeed come to serve the one and true God, the covenant Lord of Israel. It has been fulfilled. It can be trusted. God made a promise and He fulfilled it. We, can, we are not Israelites according to the flesh, but now we are full members of God's covenant people in Christ. God took a non-covenant people that He made no promises to and He takes them and He grafts them into Israel and says, My promises to Israel are now your promises if you trust in Me and My Word and My promise to you. And repent of your sinfulness and rebellion. Thus, we now possess, those of us who are Christians, who are true Israel, 
all the rights and privileges of our Heavenly Father given to His children in the Old Testament. You want to know what's yours by God's gift and grace to you? Read the Old Testament. So if we want to be knowledgeable like, like Paul here in the truth, and we want to know the whole counsel of God's Word, then we need to be familiar with the Old Testament. Just a little pop quiz. How many books are in the Old Testament? 39, yes, 39, okay. This is a little bit harder, okay? 39, yeah, hey, there we go. All right, yes. Amen. A little bit harder. How, how many different uh, genres of Scripture are there in the Old Testament? That's a little harder. I know, I know. Well, there's, there's multiple, and you could probably parse out some of these. There are historical genres, legal genres. There are poems and songs. There's prophetic literature. And then there's wisdom literature in the Old Testament. There are many good reasons, friends, to study the Old Testament. For one, the Old Testament lays the foundation for the teaching and events of the New Testament. Consider it like this. If you go and buy a book, say you're wanting to read a New York bestseller, you buy that book and you open the book up to the middle point, chapter 7, and you start reading in chapter 7, you're going to miss a whole lot of the story. You're not going to be able to make sense of the characters and the plot and what. how do we get to this ending? In the same way, the New Testament is only completely understood when we see its foundations of the events, characters, laws, the sacrificial system, the covenants, and the promises found in the Old Testament. I know that we're the New Testament church. And I know we read from the New Testament. We've been in the New Testament for a long time. Probably most of the Scripture that we have memorized is from the New Testament. But it would do us well. It would do our souls well to familiarize ourselves with the Old Testament. The story of the new doesn't make sense without the old. Amen, bro. I encourage you this week, read some Old Testament literature. Paul writes in Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in former days, Scripture, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures that we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and in accord with Jesus that together you may be of one voice glorifying the Lord God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where do I start? Read Genesis, the beginning. Read Exodus. Familiarize yourself with some of the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. When's the last time you read Ecclesiastes, church? Or the prophet Nahum. Nahu? <laughs> Nahum. Nahum. Read Nahum. Familiarize yourself with the Old Testament. Grow in your knowledge of the truth and prepare yourself to be faithful examples in trials of various kind. Prepared to defend your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone because the entire Bible points to our Christ, Amen. our Savior, our Messiah. So we see Paul was knowledgeable of the Old Testament. What does he say? I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets. But the second thing that we see that we can learn from is that Paul defended the faith. Paul defended the faith in Acts chapter 21 and then in 24 through 25. What does Paul say? The only reason that I stand here before you is because I believe in a resurrected Jesus. I believe in a man who raised from the dead, who fulfilled the promise of God to provide eternal life for those who would die in Christ Jesus. 
Paul brought up the evidence of the resurrection for the reason he has faith in Jesus as the promised one or the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ long ago promised, now resurrected from the dead. He's not in a tomb. You can't go down the street. You can't go down to the bottom of the hill and take a left and find the, the tomb of Jesus or the grave of Jesus. No, what you will find is a tomb where the stone has been rolled away and it is empty. It is empty. And He has given hope to those who trust in Him that they too will be raised from the dead. Polycarp says, burn me! Send the beasts! I will partake in the resurrection of Jesus. You have nothing that can beat that. Mm. Paul had faith that Jesus who had grown up in Nazareth, had a ministry for three years in Israel, died on a cross in Jerusalem, he didn't stay dead. Christ was vindicated in His death at the hand of sinful men who murdered Him. Christ, the God-man, was the pure blood sacrifice necessary to cleanse sinners of their guilty stains. He was the Anointed One who came to stare death in the face. Say, you have no power over me. And he was raised to new life. A glorified, resurrected body. Incapable of corruption. This faith was worthy of a defense because it's the only hope that man has in a world to rightly deal with sin and death. It's the only hope that where sin and death is rightly dealt with. Everyone else, every other religion gets it wrong. Yes, we believe in exclusive Jesus. And really, we have no further to look than Paul's own willingness to hold on to the resurrection of Jesus as the real miraculous events at the expense of His freedom and possibly even His life. Like Stephen before him and many others who will follow after, even the, some of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection would willfully and resolutely endure torture, even execution, rather than renounce their testimony. Mm. Nearly every Christian who has suffered the fate of being persecuted has been offered one simple plea bargain. Mm. Recant. And you can be set free from your suffering. And many of them never recanted. Many of them remained faithful. Most would opt to endure to the point of death, believing themselves privileged to partake in the sufferings of their Savior and for His name's sake. Brothers and sisters, would you count yourself privileged if there was a little pain in your believing? In defense of the faith, one thing that Paul makes clear to Felix and Drusilla, Felix's wife in Acts chapter 24, look with me there in verses 24 and 25, that, that this faith transforms how we live in this world. It turns the world upside down. It turns Christian living upside down. Paul demonstrates this by speaking of righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. I mean, he's bound in chains, dragged before Felix and his wife after sitting in a cell to explain why he believes in Jesus. But he does so gladly. He talks about righteousness. He doesn't hold back. Paul knows that he is counted as righteous before God and can live a righteous life because he's been saved by faith. Paul can live a self-controlled life that denies the passions of the flesh like the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and the schemes of the evil one. His conscience, like your guiltless conscience, if you believe in Jesus, your righteousness before God, your freedom from sinfulness, and the resurrection of your King are ample benefits to give you strength and boldness to defend the faith whenever we suffer. Let me say that again. Your guiltless conscience, because of trusting in Jesus, 
and the benefits and merits that He provides us, your guiltless conscience, your righteousness before God, your freedom from sinfulness, your res- the resurrection of your King and your future resurrection are ample benefits to give you strength and boldness to defend the faith whenever we suffer little or suffer to the point of death for the namesake of Jesus. You don't need a special revelation of Jesus. You don't need God to speak to you. You don't need a dream. You don't need a word. You don't need anybody to catch a thought. Okay? What you need is what Jesus provides for you. Guiltless before God. Reconciled. Remember two weeks ago, reconciled before God. Horizontal reconciliation is a benefit that strengthens you and emboldens your defense of the faith whether you suffer, suffer little or much. Remember what Jesus promised to us in Matthew chapter 5 as He starts the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Jesus says this, Blessed are those, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on My account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecuted for Jesus, you stand in a great line of persecution. And you stand with a great inheritance. You get God. You get God. This, my friends, is the good news. God sent His Son to suffer on behalf of the Jews and Gentiles alike. You can read that as when Paul, one of Paul's defense in Acts chapter 26, verse 23. And Jesus didn't stay dead. He conquered death and sin by the resurrection. He did so that we might receive the heavenly benefit and be restored back to God in perfect relationship. Perfect fellowship. If we believe if we truly believe in this Christ as our Savior and remain faithful and persevere until the end, then we will inherit the kingdom of God. Our inheritance is true and right for us. This can be your testimony today. This can be true of you today. That yours is the kingdom of God. If you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, as the King worthy of persecution, worthy of a defense, worthy of not recanting, today can be the day that you trust Jesus alone for your salvation. Today can be the day that you repent and follow Him and prepare yourself for the various trials that we will encounter in this world. If you want to, I'd encourage you to speak to a Christian friend that you came with, or you can even speak to me or Jared after the service. We would love to talk to you about what it means to put your full faith and trust in Jesus and leave and forsake your sins and be prepared to give a defense of the faith. So Paul has this knowledge of the truth. He defends the faith. And we see also that he perseveres in the midst of all of the trials. Amen. Acts 24.7, read there at the end with me. For two years had eclipsed. Well, let's just start back up in 26, actually. At the same time, he hoped that money, that's uh, Felix, hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So, so here's the offer that Paul has. Paul has, it's like, stop talking about the resurrection. Stop talking about the Old Testament. You know, you get things straightened out with the Jews. And, and, oh, and, and give me some money and you can get out of jail. Free. Here's your get-out-of-jail-free car, Paul. When two years had eclipsed. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if I want to be in jail for two minutes. Paul 
had every reason to appeal his case to be released. There was no evidence, there was no credible evidence against him. All of his accusers, when tried in the court of, of Rome and when tried in the, in the various trials, could not stand. They had no accusation that was credible and that could be levied against Paul, especially to call for his death. Like everyone who heard Paul's case was like, this guy doesn't need to die. Like he doesn't even need to be in jail. Agrippa goes as far to say Paul could have been because uh, the next trial he goes to after Festus, uh, Felix, Festus, and then Agrippa. Paul, Agrippa says, "Look, if Paul wouldn't have appealed to Caesar, there'd be no reason to keep him bound. We could let him go. There's no reason to put this man before a tribunal that might kill him." Mm. But Paul remained in prison for two years and for a little while longer. And during this time, Felix, the Roman governor of the day, let the relationship between the Jews and the Romans become so appalling that he had to be replaced by Portius Festus. Mm. The Jews who hated Paul never forgot about his imprisonment, though. They're like, no, like, I don't, we don't care who the governor is. Paul needs to die. Like, like, okay, he's rotten in jail, but we want him dead. And so they wait no longer than 10 days upon the new governor's arrival and then Paul is back on trial before Festus. He declares that he's not afraid to die and knows that it will be an injustice if he simply is handed over to the Jews. They wanted him dead. They wanted the ministry to the Gentiles to stop. You realize the risk here. Like None of us will be in this room under the power of the Gospel if this happens. But Paul stays the course. Paul, in wisdom and full use of his citizenship, recognizes the opportunity to appeal to Caesar even though it means that he will have to continue to be under arrest and in jail for an indefinite amount of time that we know of as he's making this proclamation in this defense of his faith. Nobody knows how long Paul's going to be arrested. Paul doesn't even know. Paul knew that if his appeal was granted, then he would get to Rome. Festus, not desiring at all to foul up his new role as governor, grants Paul his appeal. So Paul, like Festus is on the scene. He hears the case within 10 days of arriving. He's like, look, I'm not botching this thing like Felix did. So, so okay, Paul, you can, just, you can go to Caesar. Paul then gives one final defense of himself against, uh, to the next highest Roman official in the area, King Agrippa. That can be found in Acts chapter 26, 27-29. And amazingly, after two and a half years of imprisonment and six different trials, Paul never forgets the true reason he defends the faith. The faith. Look with me. at like Flip over there to Acts chapter 26. Right. I've alluded to this a couple of times. So Paul is before Agrippa, the king of the, the, the area. So, so there's, a, there's a governor who rules over Israel and Jerusalem, and there's another Roman guy who rules over a bigger piece of land. Paul says, for the king, in verse 26, for the king knows these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. And this is not to be done, this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether a short time or long, I would go, I would to God, I would to God that no, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Paul is still bound before King Agrippa. Paul desired that all would be saved. Anyone who is in earshot of the good news of Jesus, Paul is saying, please come and trust this Jesus. He is worthy of your trusting. He is worthy of your life. Then Paul is shipped off to Rome with a centurion at his side guarding his life. And Paul finally makes it to Rome after nearly being lost at sea to a bad storm. 
Their ship was wrecked on Malta just south of Sicily. So he's almost to, he's almost to Italy. And he wrecks in Malta. Then he was snake bitten. They're waiting for him to die. He gets swollen up and pass out. But he never gets sick and dies. And then he had to wait for the weather to change to head north from Malta to wait for the southern winds to start blowing north so they could actually sail north to the nearest port city in Rome. There was much suffering, much trial in Paul's journey. And brothers and sisters, we will either get to share in the sufferings of Christ or be called home to the Father's side after persevering through some form of persecution. Or we will die faithful as we persevere to our natural deaths. Or come Jesus soon, we will be called up in the blink of an eye upon His return. We have every reason to persevere in the most comfortable of endings and the most egregious of endings. We have no reason to forsake our King and our Savior. The one question that we must ask of ourselves today is, are we ready to persevere? Are we prepared to persevere? Many of us will live long lives and die peaceful deaths today is a day that you can prepare yourself for a long, faithful journey. You can commit regularly to read the Bible every year or read the Bible on a three-year plan. You can plan, make plans to share your faith and your testimony with your siblings, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, your children, your family members, your future in-laws. And give a defense of the hope that is in you because of Christ. You can commit to praying for your neighbors and neighborhoods that need gospel transformation and stick it out there and see it happen and see what God does. You can serve in your community always ready to give a defense of the hope that is in you. Are you willing to make long-term faithful commitments to our worthy God and Savior? Or do you question whether you will remain faithful at all? Maybe you need to think about planning for a faithful, long journey with Jesus. Maybe some of you will be a missionary. Maybe God's calling and urging some of you to leave this country and go to another one. Maybe some of you may use your job as a legitimate platform to take the Gospel to places where it's never been heard before. Or maybe some of you, even living in our own country, may be worthy of being counted among the martyrs. or those who have suffered for the sake of Jesus, are you prepared to unwaveringly stand on conviction and faithfulness to Jesus as Paul and Polycarp and past members of the family of God have? Are you prepared to unwaveringly stand on conviction and faithfulness to Jesus as Paul and Polycarp and many past members of the family of God have? You have grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandmothers of the faith who have withstood persecution. Will you stand with them? Being prepared to faithfully withstand such difficulty and trial requires that you see death as a door to eternity with Jesus. Being prepared means that you see death differently than the world sees death. As Polycarp said, burn me. I get the resurrection. Persecute us. We get to be with Jesus for eternity. God is for you and nothing and no one can be against you. Amen. I give up. If you give up your body for the sake of Christ, He is faithful and just to resurrect you to glorification. A new, whole, righteous life with God for eternity. Now, as we wrap up here this morning, I want us to remember one important thing. We know God's true, trustworthy Word. 
And if you're not familiar with it, make yourself familiar with it. We know that we're called as Christians to defend the faith when asked to. To give a defense of the hope that is in us. And we are called over and over and over again to persevere in the faith. It's not because we have heroes of the faith, but because we have one hero. Come on, bro. Who entered and endure, entered into this world and endured the shame of the cross and death to be our Savior. We are not prepared for trials because we serve idols or worship mortal men and women who have faithfully preceded us. We worship one true King who is alive today and He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding for you. He is pleading on your behalf and for your righteousness' sake. Who is the root of Jesse? He is the Lamb of God. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the One in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Christ from Nazareth, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is worthy of our devotion to the Old Testament Scriptures. He's worthy of our defense of the resurrection and our hope in the resurrection. And He is worthy to persevere to until whatever end may befall us. May you be prepared by God's encouragement to us in Luke in the account of Paul's life and ultimately in our Savior Jesus to give a God-honoring defense of the faith whenever trials may come. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father God, I am so grateful for Your Word to us. I am grateful that we have gotten to, to preach and teach through the entire story of Scripture. And see that the old is as worthy as the new. Oh God, may we be knowledgeable of it. May we understand the latter half or the former half of our story. Oh Father God, I pray for these brothers and sisters that sit before me and those who will come to this church like Will, like our brother Will, God, and proclaim allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. I pray that we persevere in the midst of the difficulties of living in this world. But God, as costly as it might be, even unto death, it, believing in Jesus, defending the faith, being prepared, is worth it. God, may we see that today. May we give an honoring testimony to our great Savior and our great God. In Christ's holy and precious name I pray. Amen.